You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Here's the question. How many threads can reveal the transformation from a couch potato to endurance athlete? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling, and we'll love this episode. On this episode, my guest is Hurley Topper, author of From Couch Potato to Endurance Athlete. Hillary is a 30-year PR veteran, runs two companies, one public relations and one media, an adjunct professor at Hofstra University, an author, podcast host, and lifestyle blogger. Seeing you in front of me, I feel like a slacker. I definitely do. <laughs> so, Hilary, nice to meet you. I've heard about you over the years, so I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk about you and your book. Thank you so much, Larry, for having me on the show. Now, over the years, between podcasts, radio and television and public events, I've read a lot of difficult books, and I've challenged myself that way. I mean this in the best possible way as a compliment. Your book was very interesting and easy to read. So it's easy for me, not the smartest person in the world. I'm sure the people that know you and have read this book also agree. A lot of information, but very easy to read. So let's talk about the structure of the book first. How did you put it together? Yeah, so it, it actually, I've had a blog uh, called A Triathlete's Diary. And this blog has been around since 2010, 2011. Right. It's a long time. And my um, my SEO guy said to me, you've got way too much stuff on your blog. You've got to take it off. So I started taking it off and I noticed that there was a chronological order to my whole existence in endurance sports, which I thought was really interesting. And I had about 350 pages and I showed it to my um, my partner at HJMT and I said to her, what do you think? And she said to me, you know, I love it. But you've got to put some personal stuff in there. Right. You've got to put some business stuff in there. It can't just be a triathlon book. I'm going to follow up on that, and I'll tell you why. I'm going to share a short story. Uh, in my television career, I interviewed John Johnson. If you go back a few years ago, he was a broadcaster, anchorman for WNBC and WABC. But he cut his teeth early on. He covered the riots at Attica. And because he was an African-American man inside when the riots were happening, he had to get down the ground because he wasn't sure how they were going to react to him. The reason why I mentioned his name, he wrote a book called Only Son. And in that book, he talked about being a bedwetter. And I said, how far will anybody go in terms of sharing their personal life? And in your book, which is very instructional, but I like the parts where you talk about your personal life. How far did you go in terms of sharing that with everybody else? Oh, it was so difficult, to be honest with you. And I had a couple of people read the book and say to me, you know, you need to explain why you're going this extra effort, why you're doing certain things, what it means to you. Why was it so important that your dad said, I'm proud of you? Right. You know, this all needs to come out because the reader doesn't understand unless you explain it to them. And I was thinking, you know, here we're living in a world, right, where everything is transparent at this point, right? I mean, the kids are all right. in the right. woke generation, right? And I'm saying to myself, you know, if this were 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't have said anything because I don't really talk about my upbringing. I don't talk about my family. I mean, that's just so far in the past. Yet, in this book, I, I needed to do that to make people understand where I was coming from. Intuitively, you understand that. When I sit down with writers, I say there are two stories. One story is inside the covers of the book. The second story, sometimes more important, is outside the book, their life. Because if you understand, I've done a lot of writer's fiction and nonfiction. It helps the reader to understand where the writer is coming from beyond what they write about. Because you know about their history, their background, where they grew up, the travails of their life. It enhances the story of the book. So I'm going to mention another famous writer, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he said, there's no second acts in America. I think you are the example 
from prior to age 48, we're giving ages away, and after age 48, you had a second act. Would you agree or disagree? With oh, that? I would totally dis. I would totally agree with that. It, it's a, it's a total different life that I'm leading right now than I did when I was, you know, younger than 48. And what my son says, which is kind of interesting, is he says, you know, Ma, you went from zero to 100. Right. And that's like a perfect description of it. So wanna, I do want to go back, since we set this up about your early life, one takeaway from the book, and this is going to be very interesting based on where you ended up, you were not comfortable in the water. So as a child, and you're, and you're nodding, people can't see, but I can see that. So thank you for the affirmation for my, for my question. So talk about your parents, your childhood, where you came from, and why the water was kind of a place you didn't want to be. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the water, um, I mean, I had a relationship with the water in that I like to look at the water. Like I would go down to the beach when I was a, a young child or, you know, even a teenager because I lived on the beach. I lived in Long Beach. On um, Long Island, by the way, for people outside New York, it's yes. a beautiful area with a boardwalk and a beach on, on Long Island. Yes. And um, so I would walk down to the beach and just stare at the water and meditate because there were – you know, I just had a lot of things going on with my upbringing. You know, my parents were, uh, my mother was very controlling and she was, she did not want us doing anything athletic because we were going to get hurt. So don't, don't go into the water past right. your knees. Right. Don't, uh, you know, don't ride your bike too fast or too hard, you know. So I would ride my bike on the Long Beach Boardwalk and we'd all go five miles an hour. And that was exercise, you know, back, you know, in the day I thought it was exercise. Anyway, in terms of swimming, I never swam. I, you know, they used to take us, they used to bus the students in Long Beach uh, to the recreation center. Right. We have a pool in Long Beach. And they would bus us there in second grade. I don't know why they didn't follow it up year after year. It was only that one year that they would bus us to the recreation center. And I just wanted to play with my friends. I mean, this was time to play, you know, this wasn't time to learn. I mean, I think, you know, I did go to camp and they, you know, they make us go in the frigid water. But I mean, I guess the only thing that I really, my takeaway from it was that I learned how to float and I learned how to doggy paddle. And that was my extent of swimming. So let's reset. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest is really topper. The book is called From Couch Potato to Endurance Athlete. A portrait of a non-athletic triathlete, which is almost an oxymoron, by the way, quite honestly, it really is. So let's metaphorically, in terms of starting exercise, were you dipping your toe into the water? Well, you know, so I'm 48 years old now and I was just so wrapped up in my business. I was start I had started my business at 30 and my whole life revolved around the business and my kids. I had two, you know, I have two kids and they were young and that's all I did. So I would hustle all the time going to these cocktail parties, you know, drinking and living the life. And, yeah. And <laughs> packing on the weight and packing on the weight. And that was an issue because my mother was severely obese and my whole mother's family is severely obese. So I was like, you know what? I'm going down the same road. And I really did not want to go down that path. So I needed to change my life. And how am I going to do that? Well, I just thought, you know, why don't I just join a gym? And that was where the fun began because I'd never been a member of a gym before. This was the first time. I really didn't know anything about the equipment. It was right. all really right. new to me. So I, I don't want to get into my background too much because this is about you, but I have a background in, in, in sports and I have a background also in coaching. So when you walk into the gym for the first time, it, it, it's noisy Everything is moving around, depending on what gym you went to. New equipment, new people, new sights and sounds. 
So who did you trust to go to to set up your, in a sense, your initial fitness program? Well, I I hired a, uh, a, a personal trainer right away. Which that is smart was, to do. Yeah, that was my thing. Like, let me just hire a personal trainer and let him help me figure out how to use the equipment. But the thing that he said to me was go warm up on the treadmill. Right. He had right. no idea. I had never been on a treadmill before. So I didn't know how to start it. And I'm asking, I have people on either side of me and they're all running and everybody's sweating. The sweat's flying all over the place. And I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so... I asked somebody, they stopped working out. I'm sure they weren't happy about it, but they did show me how to turn it on. And that's where it started. So it's one thing to take what you're doing in a sense, the comforts of a gym. It's another thing, because I've worked, I've worked with runners over the years, from mm -hmm. the very beginning to people that are were nationally ranked, to get out and take that first step to run. Because... You know right now, because you're experienced over the years, running on a treadmill is different than running outside. Why? Because the ground is moving underneath you on the treadmill. You can control the inclination, the height. You can control the speed. Outside, it's the ground and your body. So take us through those first few steps, because I tell people the hardest thing in running is the first few steps. You know, your body's saying, what are you doing to me? And so for you, what were your memories of getting out there? And I don't like saying jogging. It's all running to various degrees. I don't care if you're doing a 20-minute mile or you're sub five minutes a mile. It's running. I never liked the term, you're a jogger. No, you're moving, you're running. Walk running is moving too. So the first time you went out outside wherever you went and started to run – what do you remember? Oh, I remember it was so hard. I couldn't even run. I mean, here I was up to about a mile of running on the treadmill. and I take which, it, which is good. Which is good. And I take it outside, and now I can't even run a block. It was that hard, you know, without stopping. I just I really – it was really difficult to make that transition. Um, you know, but it was this woman, uh, Becky, who I had met at one of these women's groups, and she was really the one who pushed me into running with her. And she was a marathon runner. So I was like very intimidated about running with this person because, you know, she was so much better than I was. Right. I didn't right. really know how to do this. And so, but we just started going out little by little and run walk on the boardwalk and eventually you know we did that four miles and you know we started running run walking together you know and it took a couple it, it took a while about a month or so into it and she said to me we need a goal we need to sign up for a half marathon and I was like um a half marathon I never even did a 5k or a 10k you know so so goals are important are you pulling on your experience in the workplace to understand what setting goals mean and then you can extrapolate from that to run your first 5k now i'm going to give you a name i told you you walked in i'm going to surprise you with somebody i know i know jeff galloway okay because i went to his running camp in squall valley nice now i got to run with jeff galloway i got to run with jim fix it was a great experience this beautiful area there going on, running next to the Truckee River. But what Jeff Galloway is famous for, and I use this also in coaching, the walk-run method. And I'll give you a perfect example. I work with a woman who's a terrific master's runner. And we, and I used to work with people because I also was involved coaching Leukemia Society. And you were involved raising money for it too. And I used to tell people, we used to go on for the marathon people. They were first-time marathons, 30s and fives. You run for 30 minutes, you walk for five. The five minutes is just enough of a break. Let your body relax. Galley was famous for, Galley was famous for the walk-run method. So for people out there that don't know what we're talking about, that could usually utilize it yourself and for people you work with but also in the races that you did. What is the walk-run method? So it, it, okay, so it's, it's walking and running. 
And what Jeff's been, you know, and again, like, that's very cool that you know Jeff. I love Jeff. He's um, been uh, a mentor and a hero to me for a very long time. And I was a certified uh, Galloway coach. Okay. Uh, you know, and, you know, but anyway, for a while, I think I started in 2017 to about 2020 when the pandemic hit and that's when everything changed. But, um, so what he taught me is that you, you start out with like a five second walk, a five second run, and then a 30 second walk. And you just be consistent. Um, you move it up to a 10 second run, 30 seconds. So if you're starting out and you're starting and you want to do, you want to start to do something, you go out for five seconds and anybody could run for five seconds, right? And then you walk for 30 seconds. And believe me, I, I have a run walk group that, um, that we meet every Sunday or at different parks around Long Island. And we typically do a 10 second run, 30 second walk. And let me tell you, you know, at first people were like, oh, this is ridiculous, especially, you know, run runners, experienced runners who joined right, the group. Right. But once they did it, they were like, wow, this is <laughs> this is really good. You know, they're working up a sweat because when you're running, you're running, yes. you're running fast, right. you know. So, yeah. And also it helps. And I tell people when we, when we finish doing these, these runs, because as you know, with Leukemia Society, we built up distances all the way up to 20 miles. And I say, here's the secret. When you're done, walk backwards. And why do you walk backwards? If you look at runners' legs, very well-defined calf muscles. Certain muscles get lengthened, but other muscles get tightened up. If you want to relax the muscles that you utilize running, and by the way, running uphill and downhill is a whole different skill too. Walk backwards, you will recover faster. And they said, I'm not going to walk. I said, try it. Just walk backwards. <laughs> and now they, now I know a lot of people, part of their, their cool down is, is walking backwards. So here's another story. Because I did have, from a very young age, I was involved in sports. And sports saved my life, quite honestly. Because I became a voracious reader, reading sports books. And that carried over even today. So when I got back into running, my first race was the Jim Ryan run in Setauka, and Jim Ryan was there, the famous Olympian, world record holder. My goal was, and I just bought a very fancy pair of yellow running shoes. I ran with no socks, and, I, and now I have to use orthotics because the way I, I, I run or what I move. My goal was, one, you get a T-shirt. I didn't want to be last. I said, as long as I'm not last, I'm thrilled. Now, it wasn't last, but that was my goal. So take us to your first race. You are goal-oriented as a person, but also there's that bit of, I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't want to embarrass myself. So for the people that, that are contemplating running or been running for a long time that can think about their first races, talk us through your first race. Yeah, I mean, it it really... The thing about, I mean, in my book, I dedicate the book to the back of the Packers because I am one of them. Um, it's okay to be in the back of the pack and it's okay if you come in last. And that happened to me once or twice during a race. Actually, um, during Riverhead Rocks, it's a, a trail race. It's about 10 miles. I had done that. This isn't my first race. This was later on. But I started out slow doing the run-walk-run method. Right. And I actually had the police vehicle right behind me. And they're shaking their heads. They're getting all pissy, you know, that I'm going so slow. But you know what? I ended up by mile five. I passed so many people and people were like, oh, what are you doing? You know, yes. what What yeah. was that about? So it's all a mental thing. You know, you can't let being last to find who you are. It's better than sitting on the couch, you know, eating potato chips, right? It's better than those who sign up for races and never show up. I mean, you, you're, you're out there and you're doing it. And my first race was a 5k race in Oceanside. And, um, 
once again on Long Island. On for Long people Island. outside the area yes, listening to this yes. podcast, we're heard, we're heard overseas, by the way, too. So a lot of people. So I want to just put context in there. We're talking about primarily right now races on Long Island. Yeah. And uh, this was a race uh, to raise money for AIDS research. And it was in Oceanside, Long Island. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I get there and they give us a bib. And I was like, what am I going to do with this bib? I wasn't even I, I, I never I never saw anything like that. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, but, you know, they explained to me and we ran this race and, and my, my friend, uh, Becky, she just kept saying to me, we're running, we're not going to run, walk, we're just going to run this. And every time I wanted to walk, she was like, no, you're not walking, we're running. You right, know? So, right. But again, like what you said before, the you run, walk, you run. It's the same thing. You're still runner. You're still a runner. So don't, you know, don't put yourself down and don't feel like you're not good enough because you do the run, walk method. Now, when people read the book, the one thing we have in common and you, and I could not do what you do in terms of writing. I can ask questions. Hopefully they're decent questions, but that's as far as my ability goes. But I've gotten to travel and do a lot of races across the country. I know you have. And we'll get into triathlons, too. That's a big part of your story. One of my favorite places in the world, in the United States, actually in the world, and I've done the race multiple times, is Boulder Boulder. Mm. That is an experience. Now, I got to do it one year because I used to go to the train. So, And Frank Short used to have a store right there in the mall. So I, I and Chautauqua in the Flatirons. I can go on and on, on about the setting there. But I got to go one year because I got involved with amputee athletes and I went with one of the amputee athletes who was a Paralympic gold medalist. And I'll let you talk about the race, but that is one beautiful, challenging, but beautiful race, especially where you finish, because when you finish, you get to watch the elite runners coming, wheelchair and able-bodied, and even if you don't want to run, just sitting there is an unbelievable experience. It was amazing. I love that. That was probably one of my favorite races. And the reason for it is that the whole community gets involved. The whole community is out there. They're either, you know, opening up their pools so you can go take a dip and get back on the course or go for a slippy slide or, you know, people are juggling. I mean, there's so much going on. You think New York City Marathon is crazy? This right. is this is probably more crazy because it's like it's only a 10k you know but it is hilly and it is tough and it's definitely challenging because of the altitude as well but I was blessed to have a comp for this particular race I was media and I was asked to write about the experience which I did and what was really cool was that I was in the press truck while the women runners that's were a great place running. to be oh wow. my god that, that's bird's eye something yes. it was just something I mean they're like you know five minute mile four or five minute miles and and, just they, and, that, and it's effortless because at, at that point they're running in a pack and it just they're literally because I've gotten to see the African runners in New York City Marathon, and yeah. I, I'll tell you, maybe I'll talk about that too. But they they're gliding, they're gliding at four thirty, four twenties, depending. You know, it's it's beautiful to watch. It is amazing, and it just to me was so inspiring. You know. All right, so we're going to talk about after I'm, I, I want you to talk about this first and then we'll get into the book about your triathlon experience because that's really very special too, what you've done with that and, and helped other people. That you decided to train for a half marathon, which is a huge goal, but I believe in 2016, you also did the New York City Marathon. Yep. Now, I remember going back to the 70s. A friend of mine, when we went into the city, we saw the start, we saw them halfway, we saw them going into Manhattan we, and drove and got to the finish line. Can't do that anymore. I got so excited that I decided I want to do this. What the New York City Marathon did going back to the early days, mid-70s and beyond, they created what's called the running boom. 
and they made it okay to be what you call the back of the pack. Now, when you're in the back of the pack now, you have to wait three hours sometimes. But running that course through all the neighborhoods, the music, the changes, <coughs> the sights and the smells. And what I tell people, I remember coming up to the finish line one year at Tavern on the Green. And it is so loud, you can't hear yourself. Well, I heard my sister-in-law cheering for me. Oh, and that's, that's so just my special. story. So let's talk about your story because I think the way you broke down the marathon mile by mile by mile mm -hmm. is really inspirational. Yeah, you know, so, um, you know, I write about my training from like nine miles where I really come to terms with my mother and issues that she was going through, you know, my entire life because she was very sickly person and I had so many unresolved issues and I started to think about it. And the thing about the marathon training is that I did it all myself. I didn't have a group to do it can with. Can I interject something? Yeah. It's, it's really important to have a group if you can for support, but the fact you have to do it by yourself and it's more of a struggle. And I believe philosophically the, the essence is the struggle because if you can struggle through that on your own, when you get to the day of the event, that's the cherry on top. So when you get to the tough point in the marathon and you have struggled in training, and I recommend training the group for camaraderie and just support and everything else. But that is a very interesting, unique way to do it because that says to yourself, I think, I can do it under the worst conditions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think the uh, 20, 20, 23 miles when I was starting to get up there, it was really, wow. It was mentally and physically challenging. But the day of the event was amazing. And I, what I did was I dedicated each mile to somebody who made an impact on my life. Okay. And so, and I wrote it on my arm in indelible ink and I talked, you know, and every time a mile would come up, I would think about somebody and get them to, you know, and then when I get to mile 20 or so, I think of my sister's dog that's like a little vicious thing. And, you know, their dog has bitten me so many times. So I was like, okay, I'm going to think about Gino when I'm running the 20 miles because he's going to get me through. And he did, you know, just thinking this dog is going to chase after me. This dog is going to bite me. <laughs> I'm going to get through mile 20. But um, each mile was for somebody else. And I also dedicated a mile um, to the people who say they can't because there's so many people who say, oh, I can never do that. Right. You could do it. You could do whatever you set your mind to do. I know people, it's, a, you know, it's something that you hear all the time, but it is so true and it's all a mental thing. And, you know, if you really want something, you go and get it. So let's reset again. My guest is really topper. Her book is called Couch Potato. To Endurance Athlete, a Portrait of a Non-Athletic Triathlete. So I believe everybody has safe harbors. I did an interview recently with a young man who, be, who grew up in very tough conditions and became one of America's first black paramedics in the Pittsburgh area. And as a young man, his safe harbor was under his porch, which is very interesting. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, ultimately, in many respects, your safe harbor became the water. It absolutely did. You know, I mean, I remember going on cruises and looking at the water and there was something about the water that just drew me and, you know, going to the beach when I was little and, and trying to just work out these things that were happening to me that I couldn't explain or couldn't understand. And watching the water made a big difference to me. So I learned how to swim. And I don't know how to swim. I'm Now I'm 53 years old. I, I sign up for a triathlon. I don't even realize that you really have to swim. So, I mean, I figured I could just doggy paddle my way through it. 
Anyway, I hire a coach. He says to me, you got to go to a master swim program, which I did. I signed up. And this guy, Brian, um, he's out here in Bohemia. He said to me, you know, he saw me struggling. I mean, I couldn't even get to 25 yards across the length of the pool. I was, I just kept choking. I was throwing up. It was a disaster. It was horrible. And he actually jumped in the water with me and said, let's blow bubbles. And I felt really embarrassed because here I'm 53 years old. All of these like macho men are, you know, swimming besides me. And I'm like, oh, you know, everybody's looking at me like I, I, I really was, you know, having like emotional issues about that because I was like, you know, this is not good. And, but, you know, then I realized, you know what, it's okay. And he really helped me. And what he suggested to me, because what was happening was the water was going up my nose and right. going into my sinuses. And he said to me, you know what, go out and get yourself nose plugs. And I'm like, how could I do that? Nobody wears nose plugs. And I'm just like, you know what, people wear nose plugs. It's okay. And I actually wear nose plugs to this day. So what happened was once I started to use the nose plugs, I started to catch on with the stroke and I was able to get it done, you know, and and that was a big that was a big turning point for me was the nose plugs. Um, After that, I've, you know, I started to really love the water and now I find it to be my happy place, you know? Well, I I call it your safe harbor. It's going to surprise a lot of people because it's in great detail in the book going into the pool for the first time. That you are so comfortable in open water, rough conditions that I don't want to say you zone out. But if you swam out there in unbelievable conditions in very, very cold water, that you've overcome something inside of you says, besides everything else, I think that's your greatest victory. Thank you. Thank you. It was it was a crazy experience. I mean, I I think for me swimming in Long Beach, uh, Long Island. There was a a lifeguard event, uh, but it wasn't for lifeguards. It was for everybody. They called it like the lifeguard race. Anyway, we, I went out there and I swam a mile and I actually won an award for it, which was crazy. But but being in Long Beach, where I grew up, where I was never allowed in the water, and here I was all the way out and I'm swimming, it was just amazing experience. But I, I think the most amazing experience was when I did the, um, uh, the cross bay swim, uh, the Maggie Fisher. What was the distance? It was originally 5.5 miles. Of a swim. That's so, marathon swimming. Yeah. It started in Bay, it started in Fire Island and you swam across the sound to Bayshore. So I recruit my son and I, you know, I didn't know better. I wish somebody had told me that you really need an experienced kayaker. You know, you really did because that person helps you to get to your destination. I didn't know any better. I, I asked him to do it. He had a blow-up kayak. They told me that he can't use the blow-up kayak, so we ended up borrowing a kayak from someone. But he never was he never was in the ocean or any place that had a current. So this was like a huge thing. And what happened was we get about a mile out. I'm thinking, oh, I'm in my happy place. This is so wonderful. Right. And my son got drifted off about a mile or so off course. And we are so far off course that the volunteers and the boaters had to come and, you know, to where we were and show us the way to get to, you know, on back on course. So we must have gone about at least a mile, if not more. And it was weird because my 
Garmin stopped working. That was like the weirdest thing for like an hour. It stopped working. So here I'm in uh, in the zone and I'm thinking that I have so much time and they're and the volunteers are saying to me, you know, you, you don't have enough time. You got to you got to keep swimming to get there because you only had a four hour. There was only four hours to, to do this right. race. Time limit. It was a time. Right. Exactly. So. I actually made it in exactly four hours. <laughs> so it was more like seven miles as opposed to 5.5 miles. But in any, in any event, um, toward the end, that last mile, my arm stopped working. And it was like I couldn't even lift it out of the water. It was just so painful. And, but seeing my son smile at me was just incredible. It was it it was such a special bonding experience that we had that I'll never forget it. We're gonna take a short break. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. We'll be right back with more from Hillary Topper. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Larry Davidson here. Welcome back to the podcast, Awful Periscope. Hillary's still here. She could have run out the door, but she decided <laughs> to stay. So I guess we're doing okay right now. So along the way for all of us, there are disappointments. I know you put a lot of effort into doing a half Ironman, which is a 70.3, correct? <laughs> it's a huge deal. I know half Ironman. I know Ironman, there are quite a few here right on Long Island that are very successful. You know, they have the tattoos showing they did the Ironman. So you were very dedicated, almost obsessive, by the way, in terms of your training. So what happened that as of now, the book stops in 2021, we're now in 2023. What has happened to those efforts to doing a half Ironman? Yeah, I mean, I signed up quite a few times for a half Ironman. Um, I signed up back in 2015 when I first started to do triathlons, and I knew I wasn't ready. I needed more experience in triathlons, so I ended up dropping from that. The second time that I signed up for a, uh, an, a half Ironman uh, was in Augusta, and I was supposed to do that, and... Um, my sister uh, collapsed and had a stroke and an aneurysm. Right. And so there was, I was just mentally not, I couldn't do anything. I was completely crippled by that experience because she really was my best friend. Um, and then um, last, I guess it was a, a year a couple of years ago, I signed up for a half Ironman. And um, what I did was I got up to about 60 miles on the bike and I was supposed to run six miles off the bike. And as soon as I got off the bike, I felt something in my knee and it just, I could feel the tear in my meniscus and I knew I, it was done. I was trying to continue to train after that, but it just was not working. So I had to, I had to get out, you know, I had to stop, but I did do, um, a 70 point, well, not really 70.3, but I did a half distance aqua bike Okay. in 2020. 20, I believe, uh, 2021, uh, we had um, our, our running group, we decided to do something outside of our comfort zone. So we did it at, at um, Tobey Beach. And I, I swam the mile and a half, um, or I think it's 1.2 miles, and then got on the bike at Jones Beach and rode uh, 56 miles on the path. And that was an amazing experience because we all we there were about 10 or 12 of us and everybody did something outside of their comfort zone. Right. And that was just incredible. 
you say the magic word, comfort zone. I'm going to go on off-ramp, by the way, going back to one of my early days of doing my TV interviews. And I did an interview with a young lady who wrote a novel based on her experience as a heroin addict. And the one takeaway I had from that was she started getting excited with what I call the ritual of preparing to inject herself. And I'm reading your book, and I've seen all the coverages on uh, television. I know Sarah Reinertsen, the first female amputee to do the Ironman, failed the first time ABC covered her, second time she did it. I think she did a time after that too. And rituals fascinate me with the whole setup because you get up so early and it's a transition area you have to set up and everybody in the energy is all over the place. So how do you view what I call the rituals of preparing to do an event. That fascinates me. Yeah, that, that it really is interesting. I mean, we all get up on, you know, on Long Island as a group of, a very big group of Long Island triathletes. And we're up at the crack of dawn, like four, four o'clock, 4.30, we're up. We're out the door, five o'clock, we're swimming in Tobey or we're riding on the path or we're running on the path, you know, and we're just, we're just doing it. You know, it just becomes like a habit, almost, I would say a right, habit right. really, you know, you just got to set yourself up the night before. And then in terms of transition, it's really, you know, at the actual event, there's just certain things, you know, I always get myself ready like a week or so before the event, you know, pack everything up. I actually lay everything out, take a picture of it, make sure that I have everything lined up the way I would in a triathlon and then I pack it up, you know, so that's what I do, um, you know, so that I don't forget anything. But it's really better to be lighter than heavier. You know, you don't want to bring too much stuff with you, <laughs> which is sometimes that happens. Do you yeah. deal with any aspects of anxiety right before the oh event? Oh, my God, The yeah. anticipation, trepidation in a sense? Every time, every time I do a triathlon, I always have race anxiety. And I try to use that race anxiety to help me through the race. I mean, once the swim starts... I am so relaxed. Okay. Yeah. I'm just so relaxed. I mean, a lot of people get really nervous during the swim and then during the bike, they're like, oh, okay, I'm on my bike. All right. Um, now it's gotten to the point where the swim is great and then I get on the bike and I'm a little nervous on the bike, but then I'm, I'm good. And now the run, you know, and now I got to, uh-oh, can I do the run right after the bike? You know, that's, a, it's, a, it's very challenging. Well, it depends on course. Yeah. Whether conditions, mm -hmm. whether or not you're going to bonk. Mm -hmm. when, when I say bonk, what does mean? What does bonk mean? Well, just you can't go any further. You just can't go any further. You need maybe something like you know, um, you know, one of these honey stingers or some type of a gel or right. something right. to just get you through it. But sometimes you just bonk and you just can't go on. You just can't. We're going to take a short break. We're going to go on with the different part of this episode. We're going to talk about the world of podcasting. I'm Larry Davidson. Be right back. Three, two, one. Hi, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. In the studio, it reminds me of the joke of three people going to a bar. I'm going to extrapolate from that. Three people going to a <laughs> podcast studio and who walks out? We'll find out. Joining us right now is the man who put my podcast together, Chris Chris is going to talk about his podcast. Hillary is staying because hers is very interesting too. Each of us do different things, but I have the utmost respect for anybody that does this. And I am so fortunate to have Chris here because Chris is the ultimate professional. When we're done, there are three or four layers sometimes to this. So when it comes out, hopefully it's, well, I know it's professional, but he makes sure that I sound okay, and we cut out all my mistakes because over the years there have been some mistakes. So, Chris, tell everybody your full name and say hello and what you do in terms of the world of podcasting. My name is Chris DeCristofaro. He's got a um, great voice, by the way, much better than mine. No, not at all. Uh, and my podcast is The Library Pros. We talk about libraries and technology. Uh, mm -hmm. We're just about to crack 100 episodes. Um, 
and we've done over 100 episodes. We had special episodes and stuff, but in terms of numbered episodes, it's going to be 100 uh, coming probably in the next couple of months. Uh, and I am the head of digital services here at the Sage Public Library. So talk about how you set yours up from the get-go, from the first one till now, in terms of being a niche podcast. And I know you have a reach because you have a following in Australia and probably New Zealand too. So anybody out there that wants to learn about doing a podcast can be very easy, but also it can be done very polished and very professional. My goal is I want it to be the best it can be, and that's why I love having Chris. But if anybody wants to know what a podcast is and how do you start initially? Well, it so you have to start with the spark. You have to start with the idea. Uh, you could, you know, you say I want to do a podcast, but if you don't know what you're going to do, then you know you're kind of wasting your time. You have to have that thing that you want to talk about, and then the rest of it is, you know, it, you have to learn a little bit about audio recording. You have to learn about, um, you know, equipment. Um, sometimes people do it just with their phones, and then you have to have, um, you know, once you're done recording. You have to have a place to put it because a lot of people think you just upload your your episode to iTunes or, or Apple or Google, and that's just not how it works. Uh, you have to have an audio host, kind of like having a photo host like Shutterfly for your pictures. Right. Uh, you'd have to have the same thing for um, for your podcast. It has to live somewhere, and that does cost a little bit of money. Um, by little, I mean not a lot of money, maybe $8 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month. It depends on how much you're uploading every month. And... Um, you know, then you have to create your 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 accounts with all the different uh, services, and um, then it's time to record and do the editing and all that other fun stuff. So, Hillary, mm-hmm. you've been doing it for a while. A long time. A long I time. started in 2011. I had a, my my podcast is Hillary Topper on air, and it catchy gave- name. Yeah, you can't forget it. No, I'm teasing. Um, It's uh, primarily for business people who want to grow both personally and professionally. And so, you know, I started it as an add-on to my business, and it's really morphed into something so much more. Um, Now I focus – I still focus on helping – you know, people grow both personally and professionally. And by that, I incorporate triathlon and running and and everything in between that would help somebody grow. So when I, I in the past for a TV studio in Floral Park, when I wasn't doing my own TV program there, Davidson and Company, I would work with people that never been on camera before. And the one thing that I learned either as a host or a guest, and we had a green room, by the way, I would try to get them relaxed because it's one thing you've been doing it for a while like the three of us have. It's another thing when the microphone goes on and you're recording or the camera light goes on in TV studio. We can have – we had five camera capabilities. My job was interviewing politicians and local people in the area to get them to relax. So I'm thrilled that you're here because the best interviews, we do it face-to-face. Now, a lot of times, because of where people are throughout the country and the other, throughout the, in this country and other countries, we u- utilize Zoom. And I do, even though it's an audio podcast, we bring Zoom up so I can read body language and they can see me. So when you're to- dealing with somebody that's not a professional in terms of being interviewed, what is your approach? Well, you know, there are some interviews that I, that I do that it's like pulling teeth. I have questions and I try to get them to come out. Um, That's one group. And then the other group just keeps talking and I don't even have to ask a question because they'll just take up the whole half hour. Um, But, you know, it's pretty rare when I have those people who are, who just aren't equipped to do these i mean it's it's pretty rare i maybe once a uh, you know a year or something like that now i do teach at hofstra as we had talked about earlier and this is one of the things that i do at hofstra i help the students to produce their own podcast right and so that's an interesting thing so chris <laughs> You're dealing with people that know your world and you know their world. So the same thing, 
What is your approach when you sit down and record your podcast? Well, the first thing you want to do is because nine times out of ten, you've never met this person before. And like you were saying, Larry, you know, you want to, you want people to be comfortable. So you start by just chatting for a little while, bringing up something that you have in common with them. And for us, it'd be some kind of library thing or we complain about, you know, a particular um, piece of technology that's always been giving us problems or, you know, you, you just break the ice with something that it's common ground. Right. And uh, usually for me, by the end of the podcast, I have a friend. So that's really kind of nice. I've kept in touch with a lot of the former guests that I've had, and we've, we've established great friendships, relationships. And like you were saying, people in Australia, um, God bless them. They're, they're a lot of fun to, to chat with. I text with a whole bunch of them. Um, and, you know, they're into it. They're, they're in hook, line, and sinker. And they're my second biggest uh, nation in terms of um, podcast statistics. Very cool. It's fun. So one thing that I try to do with this podcast and even – what I've done for video and television over the years is one thing I want is I want a, the listener, the viewer, to walk away with something they didn't know because I want to walk away with something I don't know. I want to challenge myself. And I try to, if anybody goes to episodes we've done over the years, I've taken on topics that I'm not well versed in, but those are the ones that I try to put the most effort into. We did the History of Mars, 4.5 billion years. Now, I wouldn't put, pick up that book in the library. That guy was amazing. Huh. And he was in England. And we got a great response from that. Did another episode on uh, an animal zoologist, on how dogs communicate. Because I'm a dog lover, but I challenge it myself. The, the fiction books, the Nelson DeMille books, you know, I've interviewed him a million times. But I want to be challenged. So as an interviewer, how do you challenge yourself if you do? Well, I mean, I think you have to just pick up on the cues that happen within the interview to try to delve into what the person's saying and to bring them out. And people, I think, generally feel pretty comfortable with me, which is good. Like we, I really, again, like I, I, I do the same thing that Chris does. You know, we have a little bit of rapport before, you know, try to, try to get, make it more conversational so it's not so intimidating. And yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, that's, so the other question is, and I've, I've spoken about this and I've tweeted about this. And by the way, do you use Twitter much to get the message out? I do. I use, uh, I use all the social media. Um, I'm big on Instagram. Instagram is my, my thing. I'm also on TikTok. I, okay. <laughs> I know you don't love TikTok, but I, yeah, I do. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Facebook. I actually wrote two other books on the subject of social media. I wrote the a book in 2009 called Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Social Media. And that was uh, one of the first books on social media. And then in 2020, right before the pandemic in January, I launched my second book, which is called Branding in a Digital World. And that book actually has some information about podcasts and about how to get your message out to the, you know, to the public using social media, podcasts, blogs, etc. So I'm pose the same question to Chris in terms we've had these discussions many, many times about promoting. Now, you can, you can pay somebody to pay a fortune to promote your podcast, and it sounds great, and it's very enticing, but I don't know if it's worth it in terms of the cost factor. So, Chris, what, are you, what is your opinion, and what have you done to promote, in general, podcasts, but also yours specifically? Well, Twitter seems to be the place where podcast people go. Um, you know, Elon Musk notwithstanding, um, you know, it, it's always been the place for dialogue. For the most part, they haven't messed up your timeline where Facebook has completely messed up your timeline to the point now where you're seeing breaking news and it's, a, it's three or four days old and it's in your, it's in your feed. Um, but, you know, I think Twitter is the place that people and podcast people usually go to for more interaction because you can get that one-on-one -on -one interaction with the hosts of the show. Um, we also do Facebook, but not as often. And one thing that I like to do is I push it on my LinkedIn page because other than getting the spam 
friend requests from podcast promoters in Bangladesh and, and Pakistan, <laughs> um, you know, you can get some really meaningful engagements there. Um, and it's also a place, a great place to find guests. So it's a great way to kind of do two things at the same time. Um, for us, Instagram doesn't really work that well because, you know, we're sitting in a studio and different audience it just, too. it's a different audience. It's yeah. very different. Yeah. You know, for me, it's more, it, this is actually would be my audience, you know, cause they're, it's like the right age group and you know, that type of thing. And I do get, I do get a significant amount of people, um, listening from the links that I put up on Instagram, mm -hmm. um, you know, but I do have a significant following on all of these sites, so that really helps as well. Yeah, it, and it's once you get loyal listeners, they will retweet and repost and, and re 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 everything, um, and that's how you can kind of build your listenership. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's one aspect of it, but social media is definitely a part of it. Yeah, I mean, guests really should also do mm -hmm. that. You know, it, you you hope when you have a guest on that they repurpose the. Uh, the interview, I always do. So this will get repurposed on my, on my media. So I'm going to mention somebody interviewed because there's a very famous scene at the finish line of Iron Man in Hawaii, and you interviewed her, and that's Julie Moss. So share that story because um, iconic moment in a sense. Julie is another one of my heroes. I, I saw her. Um, on the wide world of sports back in, I, I forget the year, it was probably like 78, 79, 80, I'm not 100% sure, so don't quote me on that, but she was not a triathlete, but she was athletic, and she she does the Ironman, and she, they don't think you know, nobody thinks that she's going to do anything at this Ironman. And here she's leading the pack. And just as she's like 100 or 50 yards from the finish line, she collapses. And the second place person who was the, you know, the person that they right. thought would win, right. she surpasses her. And Julie ends up crawling to the finish line. And it was just such an iconic moment in history, in the history of endurance sports yes. that, you know, I, I, I think the world of her, she's been on a few of my, um, my podcasts. She's done a few webinars for me. And, um, I just think the world of her because it's just and, – and what she does is she talks about the mental issues of, right. Sim, of right. endurance sports. So it's kind of cool. So we've all had embarrassing moments. So before we let you go, you mentioned swimming. You mentioned Hofstra. Uh, you know where I'm going, right? All right. Got your number. I see. I know. I read the book. I read the book. All right. And my daughter's a Pratt graduate of Hofstra University. So I'm, you're not going to get it with, away with this one. A lot of people have a problem, especially when just starting out and getting proper sizes and wetsuits and bathing suits. So you're doing a swim workout in Hofstra. And I don't know if you were filmed or not. But what happened? So, you know, I've, I've always gone up and down in weight. I just can't seem to stay thin. <laughs> I go up, I go down, I go up, <laughs> I go down. Anyway, so at this point of my training, I had lost about 20 pounds. And I'm still wearing the same extra large bathing suits, right? And I noticed that it's big. The The strap is big. I could feel that it's big. But, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go for a swim. So I go in the pool at Hofstra and I'm swimming. And I'm noticing that people are looking at me. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, am I swimming? Great. Like are people thinking that, wow, look at this person. She swims so well, you know. Like I just couldn't understand why everybody was looking at me. And I noticed, I felt like there was some cool water around my boobs. <laughs> and I noticed at the end of the pool, when I got to the 25-yard whatever mark, I noticed that my bathing suit had dropped down. 
and I was swimming almost almost naked. So that was very embarrassing. And I actually haven't been back since. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. You can come back to this podcast anytime. My guest has been Hurley Topper. The book is from called From Couch Potato Endurance Athlete, A Portrait of a Non-Athletic Triathlete. Hillary, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidsonsProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her kitchen chair, she brought-